Several decades ago, so many Americans reacted with horror when Big Tobacco was using Joe Camel to intentionally target youth. Why were they doing it? Because tobacco, Big Tobacco's response at the time was, if we can get somebody smoking at age 13, 14, or 15, we have a client for the next decade, two decades. I would argue that's exactly what Big Tech's thinking. It's a big day in America. We're taking on Big Tech. And among the many privileges that I have as president of the Heritage Foundation, one of them is introducing really important men and women who have courage. They have courage because they know the truth, people who are cheerful warriors. This particular introduction and conversation that I'm about to have is special to me because this is also my attorney general as, as a relatively new Virginian. To go from Ken Paxton in Texas to Jason Miaris in Virginia means I'm a pretty privileged guy. Jason Miaris, as you know, served in the House of Delegates starting in 2015. In fact, almost 50 years to the day, his mom, who migrated from Cuba, was able to vote for him in 2015. And he went on to be elected the 48th Attorney General of the great Commonwealth of Virginia. And since that time, he has been fearless. He has been someone who is a great communicator for conservative principles, as we'll be talking about today, not just cleaning up big tech's mess, but from the standpoint of a father, which really resonates with people across the political spectrum. And so it is a great privilege to welcome Attorney General Miaris here. Please join me in welcoming him to the stage. Great to be here. Well, General Miaris, welcome to Washington, D.C. Right across the river. Yes, sir. Indeed. How's life? It's good. You know, I, I like to say my job is I get to wake up in the morning and, and sue the Biden administration. So uh, it's, it's fun and business is booming these days. There's a lot of job security. In right, that. right, right. We'll, we'll get into some of the details of some of the actions that you've taken, but sort of high level question as we jump in here, people who are here in the audience in person, no doubt, have spent some time either watching online or in-person hearings today on big tech. What's your sense about where we are in this moment as it right. relates to common sense Americans? Forget, forget you know, where they are, quote unquote, politically, but common sense Americans realizing we're at this inflection point and now we get this hearing today. Well, I think you're right in the sense that we're at this inflection point. Uh, I'm convinced that Decades from now, future generations are going to look at the way we allow big tech to run amok, the way we allow this exposure and targeting of our kids, and think, how in the world did this happen? How did we get here? And so I think you're starting to see a real pushback. You know, one of our themes in Virginia in 2021 when we ran, uh, Governor Yunkin would put on our campaign signs, Parents Matter. Uh, and that's really, in many ways, the genesis of this. Of everything we've done in, as AG, one of the most reactions has been some of our litigation investigations in the big tech. So you're seeing just grassroots efforts by parents. I'm so grateful for Heritage, the work they're doing, raising the profile and being the tip of the spear of this as well. You're seeing federal legislation, but you're also seeing a lot of work by our state AGs around the country banded together, and even on a bipartisan basis. Very few things that can bring people together. But I think even Democrat AGs are seeing the data of the social health crisis, um, the mental health crisis for our kids. And it's really, our, we are at this inflection point of, we've recognized now we have an enormous problem, and now we have to go about rectifying it. We'll talk about how you've gone about trying to rectify it in your current position, but, but getting to know you pretty well over the last couple of years. Also know you see the world, you see your own work, your avocation through the lens of 
being a dad right. to, to, to three children. Give us advice as a parent about social media. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I have one of those things where I have the, the diamonds on my heart, my three daughters. Uh, they're 17, 15, and a very precocious 12. And like a lot of parents, it's a battle. It's a, it's a, a constant both monitoring and candid worry of what they're saying. And, and, you know, if you're a parent, make sure your child's cell phone is being charged in your bedroom or in the hallway and not in their in their room. Monitor what's happening. Make sure you have parental controls. The one thing I've realized, if you're a parent, tragically, and if you give your child a smartphone with social media apps and you have no parental controls on that, that is a day that your child's childhood ends. That's a day their innocence goes away because the messages and the targeting of what happens for our youth, Kevin, it's unlike anything we've ever seen, whether it's Meta or whether it's TikTok, the reality is, is that you were literally dropping your child off at a city park at 1 a.m. in the morning with no parental supervision and a lot of bad actors around there waiting uh, to get involved. So really, when we say parents matter, it also means, gosh, it's hard being a parent these days. You have to have those conversations. You have to make sure they have guardrails as where to protect them. Um, and also, my job then as attorney general is to make sure the big tech's held accountable. So let's talk about that a little bit. And thank you, by the way, for the, for the advice. I'll just underscore that not only as a dad of four, including three girls, roughly the same ages. As yeah, us. yeah. We, we know the world. Right, right. But also as a school leader that I, I've, I've seen wonderful kids' lives temporarily ruined mm-hmm. by social media. Obviously, we've had some just gruesome and tragic stories in the last days about lives permanently being ruined, obviously. This, therefore, is a question about your, your attorney general hat. How do you respond to the devil's advocate question, just let parents decide? Let's, and, and, and this is often a well-intentioned rejoinder by well-intentioned conservatives, common sense folks who say, we, we believe in, in parents deciding. How do you respond? Well, I think what you've seen is part of our job as attorney general, what, what we say, the <clears throat> phrase I sometimes use is attorney general of Virginia, we view ourselves as the people's protector, whether it's major crime or bad corporate actors. And I believe in parental rights, obviously, but what happens when bad corporate actors are putting profits ahead of our kids' safety? So we already technically have federal uh, uh, legislation that's been codified, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, otherwise known as COPA, that says you can't have a social media account if you're under the age of 13 without explicit parental permission. We know now that up until 2019, uh, Instagram, owned by Meta, had no restrictions whatsoever. And effectively, all you have to do is go online if you're a 10, 11, or 12-year-old and simply say, yes, I'm 15, I'm 17, I'm 19. It's estimated that 45% of every 10, 11, or 12-year-old child in America today has an Instagram or a TikTok account, close to half of every child. We also know you can look at a graph around the same time that smartphone usage and social media explosion happened around 2009. And that same graph shows the explosion of teen anxiety and mental health crisis. And what's so ironic about all this, Kevin, is on paper, this should be the happiest generation in American history. They're the most educated, they're materially the most well-off. But the reality is this is the most depressed generation in American history. One in three teenage girls in America today have had a suicidal thought or iteration. The levels of depression and anxiety are off the chart. 
and you're seeing so much data that shows increased usage of, of social media is leading towards this mental health crisis. So my response would be that as we now know, uh, for those who say, let parents decide, what happens when you have Instagram, Meta, testifying in Congress, essentially saying we are not knowingly targeting children, and now we know they were running TV ads, they were running targeted ads on PBS Kids and other children's shows. What happens when we now know that their internal communication showed that they, they somewhat referred uh, to the youth market as an untapped market, uh, that these digital, uh, targeted digital was like sprinkling digital cocaine for our youth, that they've set up systems essentially make sure you stay online or constantly looking at your phone. And so I would say part of our job is to recognize when these are bad corporate actors, and I would end with this, Several decades ago, so many Americans reacted with horror when Big Tobacco was using Joe Camel to intentionally target youth. Why were they doing it? Because tobacco, Big Tobacco's response at the time was, if we can get somebody smoking at age 13, 14, or 15, we have a client for the next decade, two decades. I would argue that's exactly what big tech's thinking. The number one driver of social media use in a household is a parent gets a social media account. Why? Because their child gets one. And so they've realized that they have a quote-unquote ambassador in the household encouraging the parents and their siblings to get that Instagram account because parents want to try to monitor it. And it's a way that big tech purposely targeted minors in order to spread the usage of their social media accounts within households and within Americans. And knowing they would have then a quote client for the next X number of years. Uh, that's where we're at. And that's, that's what I think makes it different than just simply saying it's just leave it up to parents. And the parallels between tobacco and when we were growing up and, and social media today are actually very striking in terms of, of preying, frankly, on, on youth. Let's, let's pick your brain as an attorney. Uh, tell us about the basic arguments behind your meta lawsuit. They, they dovetail with what you were just talking about right. in response to that question. Well, a lot of what our meta lawsuit is the basic. We have uh, um, every, almost every state attorney general in the country has a variety of consumer protect, protection statutes in uh, embedded in their code. And so we actually are leading 41 state AGs are part of this. We have a steering committee of which I am on along with the Attorney General of Tennessee, Jonathan Scametti, the Attorney General of Colorado. It's bipartisan. Uh, and so the idea that we have is we pull our resources together. But really the core of it is a consumer protection where they are knowingly allowing minors to have access to a platform. Uh, they knowingly are targeting minors as well. Um, and when I mentioned Joe Camel, I realized a lot of people may not even know what Joe Camel was. It was a cartoon that cigarette companies were using, and what they realized from their own, what we now know today, they saw that children were attracted to the cartoon, and so they featured this cartoon character on so many advertising, specifically to target youth. And so that was a violation of a host of different states' consumer protection laws as well. That's really the core of what it is, and it really is a guardrail to keep these big corporations in, in check. And these are massive. I mean, I cannot emphasize enough. They make Standard Oil look like a small mom and pop store. These big tech companies, the resources they bring to bear, I have to commend Heritage uh, Foundation for standing up to this because the amount of money and power these big tech corporations have, it is a tough fight. And we need people both in the trenches, up on Capitol Hill, obviously our state AGs, but it's going to be all-encompassing moving forward. 
given that it will be all-encompassing from the standpoint of the average American, the average American family, if the, the lawsuit prevails, what's, what's the, the impact that people can anticipate in their everyday lives? I, I think if you're a parent, for once, you will have real substantive parental control on these platforms, which the technology already exists. It would not be hard for them. Where, the, where you're a parent, you actually have the ability of monitoring who is on these platforms. And you have to have explicit parental permission. So uh, as far as as far as uh, as far as this litigation. This is a little different than something we're helping Governor Yunkin in in Virginia. He has he has legislation, I'm happy to talk about it, about banning TikTok, which is another separate can of worms, just for minors in Virginia. Um, but our litigation will require these big tech companies to have real substantive parental controls and parameters. And candidly, you know, I like to say no one should ever be sued and have it be a surprise as attorney general. Uh, we try to have these conversations, obviously, and, and it's unfortunate we're here, but it's never too late to do the right thing. They can tomorrow adopt some of the parameters of what we're asking for to really protect parents. So I you know I saw that Mark Zuckerberg apologized today on Capitol Hill. Uh, kudos to Lindsey Graham for pressing him on that. But apologies aren't enough. Now it's time for action. It's easy to get up there and say, I'm really sorry about the impact uh, social media has had on your, on your child. But now is the time for you to actually pr- empower parents, again, parents matter, and give parents these tools to make sure that we don't have what we currently have, which is close to 50% of minor children, 10 to 12, on these apps, when technically under COPA, they're not supposed to be on without parental permission to begin with. So there are, in fact, probably several changes that these corporations can make themselves on their own right. to address these concerns and then the proverbial dog sort of back off, right? Well, I mean, the idea is is that this is where I think we're going to end up. Either either the ju- a judge is going to order them or they can voluntarily do it themselves. And that's going to be up to these corporations. It's going to require constituents to hold them accountable. And I will tell you, of, of all the things we've done as AG, uh, the one that I get stopped the most on you know, from out at the store or at a restaurant from parents is this issue. I am, I am somewhat surprised the number of parents that say thank you. One of the, the most common word I hear is we feel overwhelmed. We just feel overwhelmed at the deluge of what's happening. And you, and you hear so many of these stories as well. It used to be the bullying would end at 2 or 3 o'clock when your child gets on the school bus. Now it follows you home. This is in a lot of ways even worse. And, and your child is, is much more likely to meet a, a sex predator online than they'll ever meet uh, in a neighborhood or at the mall. Um, in fact, human trafficking sometimes occurs without your child ever leaving the bedroom. Um, and so what you have right now is you have this online world that is so dangerous for our kids, and you labor on top of that, you have big tech companies that have allowed a free-for-all as well for years, and nobody's been holding them accountable. That then it provides really good context for the consumer protection side of this, right. and, and sort of like one of the previous questions we, we encountered. From the standpoint of conservatives, that isn't necessarily the first tool we reach for in the toolbox. Right. And, and I know you well enough to know that's not the first tool that right. you reach, but it's also not illegitimate, particularly on this, on this matter. Right, and there's a role, and um, I mean, obviously, you have a role both in litigation and you know, you're not you're, you're as a conservative, as somebody who believes in limited government, you're not necessarily looking, say, for example, uh, to, to quote ban an app for minors. But I'll give you an example for TikTok. Um, this was this was a demonstration done for me. If if they set up a fake 15 year old 
girls account. Uh, they set this up in our, in our, in our a boardroom. They pull this up on the screen. They set up this fake 15-year-old girl's account. If you and I were to set up a TikTok account, the first videos that would show up would probably be, I don't know, golf videos, something about American patriotism. First videos that showed up on this feed. First, one of the first was a self-harm video. How to date an older man. Again, profile 15-year-old girl. Another one glorifying drug use. Another one uh, describing how to use a sex toy. These are the first videos that show up in a feed of a brand new user on, on, on TikTok. I was, I was absolutely floored by this. And so when we say, you know, because I've had parents that have TikTok to say, well, I don't really see anything. It's, you know, these videos are fun and whatnot. First of all, it's designed to keep you engaged. But they give you a compare to what it is in China. All right, so it's owned by ByteDance, a, a company based out of China. In China, they have strict controls. Nobody under the age of 15 can be on it. After 45 minutes of usage, it cuts off. Nobody can access it after 10 o'clock at night. And so many of the videos on there are videos that glorify the People's Liberation Army or the Communist Party or the best of Chinese culture. It's very, very different than the algorithms what's showing up in our feeds. And when you layer on top of that the national security issue, where now you're allowing, again, they passed a law and passed a law, but there's a law in the books uh, since at least 2016 in China that all of your data, every keystroke, uh, any information that they can collect can be turned over to the Chinese Communist Party at any time. So uh, TikTok is both a national security concern, and we'll let the, our federal friends worry about that in many ways, but my concern is a consumer protection concern, and I think it's absolutely valid, and that's why I applaud the governor, Governor Youngkin's effort to, to ban it for minors in Virginia. What's the feasibility of that ban happening? You know, right now you're having a lot of litigation. What we're seeing is we're working with the, the litigation. Um, you know, the most likely scenarios you're going to see is, is litigation that really empowers a private cause of action, believe it or not, uh, saying a parent has the ability of, of suing $75,000 per instant if you are not properly applying the COPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, for your platform. It is amazing uh, how that can somewhat get these big tech companies to get in line when they're suddenly seeing real substantive penalties in place. So, you know, we're trying to think outside of the box. Um, you know, we, we've been part of our amicus brief with what Montana's been doing, but we're looking at something very Virginia-specific. We hope it can be a model um, across the country because Governor Youngkin, like I, am really concerned about what we're seeing, the impact on our youth. Any, anything you might be able to forecast in terms of the, the General Assembly doing this session? Obviously, we know that uh, the, the numbers aren't necessarily in our favor. Well, it's closely divided. I mean, Virginia is a closely divided state. It's one vote in each chamber. Uh, I was very disappointed last year that Governor Youngkin put in a budget amendment that would say big tech companies can't sell a minor child's data. And that would be common sense, right? Well, we know in government, one would say- common sense is not very common sense. It died in a partisan vote. Uh, we are we are somewhat hopeful. Uh, we, we have we have seen some movement, at least behind the scenes. We will see. Uh, I will say tragically, uh, you know, some of the big tech companies have probably hired half the lobbyists in Richmond, and so they have an aggressive lobbying campaign. I know they've done it here in Washington D.C. They have an aggressive lobbying campaign. So we'll see. Uh, uh, but my hope is, is that these delegates are hearing what I've heard from so many parents, which is they feel overwhelmed. 
give us help, do something about these irresponsible uh, corporate actors. And so many parents right now, I've heard some that if their kids have had such an impact, and they will say, like, I wish I had known. I wish I had known what this was doing to my child. And so we want to make sure parents are aware of it. Obviously, parents matter, have those conversations, have those parental controls. But encourage your legislator. If you're Virginian listening or if you're anybody online in your state, I can guarantee you your legislative body is at least considering something in this space. Call your legislator. Make sure your voice is heard. Sign up to be with, with Heritage, to be part of their team, making sure people are aware of what's going on as well. Because your voice has to be amplified and can cut through what I think is a pretty aggressive lobbying effort to kill any substantive legislation. And that's one of my other frustrations. They will say publicly they want to be part of the solution, but every time there's legislation they actually try to push back and actually put these guardrails in place, they always find a reason to kill it. Um, and so we really require private Americans to stand up and say, no, we demand accountability. It is remarkable that uh, two things. Number one, this is an issue that by definition transcends partisan politics. Yeah. And, and so it is remarkable that it is in, not just in Virginia really cuts along those lines. But the second thing is remarkable in a good way. And that is in spite of that, as you and Governor Yunkin and Lieutenant Governor have shown in a deeply divided state, when you have the popular will. Correct. And you speak in common sense terms, not in ideological terms, and you speak on behalf of parents and families, you can break through those log jams, right? Yeah, no question. I mean, I will say, you know, we did, a, um, we did an internet safety town hall in Loudoun uh, with, with Donna Rice Hughes. It was fantastic, one of our best attended event. We're doing several more of them around the state because I think there's a hunger for this. And I do think it transcends politics. I don't know when we got to a stage in society that protecting our children's innocence no longer was a priority. But it seems like that's where we've gotten. And I think you're seeing the whole Parents Matter movement, parental rights movement, really, in some ways, it, it began with that. How did we get to a stage where protecting our kids' innocence just didn't matter that much? And I think that's kind of the really what motivates, I know, me I know it motivates so many at Heritage and those in Congress that are tackling this is the idea of, you know what, our, our kids matter, what they're being exposed to right now, the mental health crisis. Um, it's unlike anything we've ever seen as a country and as a nation. And it's good. it took a lot of steps to get here. I don't think there's a silver bullet per se. I think there's going to be a lot of steps to get back to a point where we're getting back to equilibrium where we are championing parents. And it's going to take some perseverance, not just from elected officials like you and the governor, but people in this audience, people who are tuning in. And, and that perseverance, I know that you would attest to this as an elected official, really does pay off. Yeah. So let's, let's imagine that the five tech CEOs who are in town today cross the street from the Capitol. They walked into this great fear at the Heritage Foundation. <laughs> sitting right here, General Miaris. Yeah. What would your message to them be? Stop putting profits over our kids. You can, too, within 24 hours, change your platforms to protect kids. Within 24 hours, you could change your platforms to empower parents. Within 24 hours, you could be a good, responsible corporate actor and help end what is happening to so many young people that are going down this dark, dark path. You could be a champion to help end and be a great tool to also help end the targeting and exploitation of our kids by sexual online predators. Be part of the solution. Stop being part of the problem.
That'd be my message. Yes, sir. I had an inkling you weren't going to disappoint with that. <laughs> One final policy question, and then the final, final question that I try to ask all guests here, especially elected officials. Different but related topic, artificial intelligence. Right. Uh, I'm a historian. I'd spend more time thinking about the past than the future. So AI scares the daylights out mm. of me. But my kids tell me, oh, dad, it could really improve your life. What are we going to do about this from a policy standpoint? You know, it is the first technology in a while that has the ability of completely disrupting what have traditionally been white-collar jobs. Uh, it's in many ways productive, but I remember somebody did an advanced chat GBT uh, example for me where they just said, write a speech for Jason Miares. They wrote the speech, and I thought, wow, they're using some of my phrases. I mean, it wasn't perfect by any means, but I remember turning to my comms director and said, are you paying attention to this? So it's incredibly disruptive. I had a friend of mine who's a CPA at a, an accounting firm, and he said, I worry that a third of CPAs could be out of a job in the next five years. So it's going to be incredibly disruptive. Uh, it's like any other tool. It could be an incredible tool for good. It could be incredibly disruptive. Um, and so there probably needs to be some type of federal guardrails, which I'm not necessarily inclined to ever want to empower the federal government. But in this regards, um, particularly when you look at what AI can now do with, with uh, exploitation of children. If you have a photo of your child on your Facebook page, the bad guys can take that photo and they can then digitally alter absolutely graphic, sexually graphic videos with your child's face on it. That can happen right now. Uh, they can take your photo of yourself and they can have you suddenly announce that you want to you know, go invade Canada or something. I don't know. But there's really no response. There's, there, there's no liability. And so they also need to be some protection where if somebody is suddenly having you s say something incredibly vile that would possibly cost you your job, right? There needs to be consequences as well for people that use AI as a tool for targeting young people and destroying people's careers, lives, or reputations. It's going to be difficult. My worry is sometimes the federal government can act in a very clumsy way. It's going to require a lot of smart stakeholders to get involved. But AI is going to be, it's going to be a tool that could be amazing. In healthcare, you can have somebody in rural healthcare have access to the equivalent of a John Hopkins doctor in their little old town for diagnosis. So it's pretty amazing what it can do, but it can also be a tool for evil, and you have to make sure you have guardrails. Thank you for that. I was I heard recently in Davos that we didn't need to vote anymore because AI could handle that. Oh, we had quite an experience. True story. <laughs> yeah, <friends. laughs> a little PTSD. Yeah. Uh, last, last question, and, and thanks, by the way, for being here. This is a question I, I try to ask as many people as possible on this stage. I know you to be hopeful. You're an optimist by nature. But you're also someone I count on to be a realist. And, and I think yeah. this conversation today indicates that. You're not a hollow optimist. So you woke up this morning. I know Jason Miaris well enough to know you woke up hopeful, leaning forward into the future in spite of all the challenges that right. exist in Virginia and Washington and America, why? What's the basis of that hopefulness? Well, some of it is, you know, people ask me what kind of name is Miara's. I say, well, it's Southern. And, uh, <laughs> Very Southern. But I have a deep, different perspective. And I will say, uh, uh, just last week, uh, I got to speak at a naturalization ceremony in Harrisburg, Virginia. And the judge doesn't always do this. That was one of my earliest childhood memories, seeing my mother become a citizen. She had asked me to teach her the Pledge of Allegiance as a child. But I will tell you this, the judge in that courtroom did something different. He handed the microphone, a 
yourself to these new Americans. And the one word I would use to describe what they said was gratitude. So many of them got up and said, America is the most welcoming country we've ever seen. That this, that I'm the proudest day of my life to be an American. And there was this 70-year-old gentleman from Afghanistan who got up. He didn't speak very good English, and he wrote out, he had his son write out a note he wanted to read. He said, this is the proudest day of my life. Both of my children have served the United States military, and I have told them their number one goal in life needs to make sure that their future children are as proud of this country and the amazing freedom it bestows on all of its citizens as I am. It was so moving, and I turned to one of my staffers and I said, there are more American flags in this courtroom than you've ever seen a college campus, and more gratitude than so many young Americans right now that have lived here for generations. That gives me hope, because sometimes it takes an outsider's perspective that we are indeed the last best hope on Earth, as President Reagan noted, that we are a unique country. We're still that beacon of hope and liberty. Um, and so that gives me grat. I, I tell and I would say everybody in this room, you won life's lottery by being here today, because right now there's millions of people that wish they could be where you are. That's to be an American. It is, people talk about privilege, American privilege, by being here, by breathing the air as a free American which also means we have to preserve it and fight for it for the next generation, to quote Reagan. So uh, it gives me hope, but it's also going to be a, a tough battle ahead. Amen. So you and I will shortly welcome our friend, my colleague, Kara Frederick, who directs our Tech Policy Center to the stage. But right before we do that, I'll ask all of you in the audience to join me in thanking Attorney General Jason Meares for a great conversation. Thank you. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.